look, if I had the entire world to give to God, I mean, the entire world, all the treasures of it, all the, all the vast, uh, uh, all the things that could be found in this world that would appeal to mankind, to God, if I could give him everything, it wouldn't be enough. He deserves, he deserves far more. And you know, quite honestly, all he asks is that we give him our lives. And may we have uh, the heart that's willing to say, Lord God, you deserve, you deserve that. You're worthy. You've given me so much. What a great God. Thank you for singing that song and reminding us of that truth. We'll dismiss our young people right now for time in the Word in the upper room so young people can head on out today. And as they are headed to the upper room, grab your Bible. You already have it. Turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. A preacher told about a website he came across, and he said that the website was, and it, it was a church that had it, and the website was, Jesus does not care. Now, that might grab your attention, and... Uh, and uh, might cause you to be a little bit concerned, but it emphasizes on that website, according to him, that Jesus doesn't care about apparent appearances or social status, but he does care about us. And the preacher said it's, there's obviously some truth to that statement, but the website also had some uh, people who had expanded on the thought that Jesus did not care, and part of them included areas of sin in their lives. Well, the preacher said, a page on the site has a forum where visitors can leave anonymous remarks. And a 19-year-old young man uh, wrote these words, Jesus cares about us repenting of our sin and leading a holy life acceptable to him. To say that he doesn't care about our sins gives many uh, the false mindset that it's okay to live a sinful life because Jesus doesn't care, right? You guys have Christ-centered hearts, he wrote, but I'm not fully on board with you on this new series. Your church, he didn't, we didn't put the name in. The names are changed to protect the innocent, as they say. Uh, he said, your church proclaims Jesus doesn't care about the junk in your life as much as he cares about having an intimate relationship with you. Well, the young man concluded, it's that junk that gets in the way of us obtaining that type of relationship you're talking about. You see, in the sense of someone coming to Jesus Christ and being saved, Jesus doesn't care how bad a sinner you've been and, and what you've done in life. He's willing to take you and to save you. But to suggest that Jesus doesn't care is foolishness when it comes to the Christian life because Jesus does care. While he will accept any who come to him, he is not willing to overlook sin or evil. It was sin or evil that put him on the cross in the first place and he wants Christians to change and to get rid of those sins that were, were found in their lives before salvation. And that fact is found throughout the Bible, but it's powerfully found in the passages before us in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. And you say, well, we're here again, Pastor. And that's true, because last week we spent time giving you just a real brief, I mean, talking scratch on the surface, 
not even scratch on the surface, just kind of touch the surface of this passage and giving you an overview of these chapters. And we mentioned just some very basic things. First of all, we saw the goal that God has for the church and the individual. Does anyone remember what that goal is? It's one word. God calls for all and God longs for all and God desires for all to be. Be saved, yes, but to be overcomers. Thank you very much. I knew someone would, would come up with that. All right, at the end of each one of the letters, he says, to him that overcometh. So God's goal and God's desire is, I want you to be a victorious Christian because, <laughs> because God says, I do care how you're living right now. <coughs> Excuse me. I do care what's going on in your life right now. And so that is his goal. We also shared with you that God is the one who gave these words. And as you know, if you have a red letter edition of your Bible, they're all in red letters because these are the words, literal words of Jesus Christ to each one of these seven churches. And we said that he gave words of inspiration. Uh, he gave to, to most all of the churches. He gave words of indignation to many of the churches. And he gave words of incentive to all of them, to encourage them to be that overcomer God wants them to have. And then we concluded last week with the game plan. All right, so we saw the goal, we saw the giver, we saw the game plan. And that is very simply in this passage, if you want a, like an overview of it all, the overview of overviews is simply listen and respond to the word of God. Say, great. Now that overview is powerful in itself. But this past week, God kept bringing this passage back to mind. And I felt like there was, there was so much more to say that wasn't said. There's so much more to learn and so much more to think about that will help us get ready for revival, but not just get ready for revival. Um, that will help us to do what that song talked about. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, just to give him our all, to give him our life, to understand that God wants more than just people who have been saved and now we're happily on our way living our lives for ourselves. God wants his people to live for him. And God has answers. Um, God has answers in his word, and God has help for us in these chapters. And I'm, I'm praying that God would use these, these chapters once again, and if you would, a second overview, but a little bit deeper today, looking at Revelation 2 and 3 and the seven letters to the churches. So let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, I thank you that last week we had the, the privilege of digging into this, this passage and just very briefly seeing uh, the truth and the overall message that uh, is to be gleaned that, God, you want us to be overcomers. And I pray that that, whole, that thought would again be driven home to us, that we would understand that the Christian life is, is that God does care about how we live and God does care about what we're doing and help us to be concerned about that. And I pray that our hearts would be opened and that you would just drive home the truth today that your people need. Help us to seriously, thoughtfully consider your word and help me to present it in a way that will help your people, I pray. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you need revival 
You know, if someone were to ask that question, I think most Christians would want to say, well, of course not. I don't. But as I come to the letter to the churches, I'm reminded that everyone has something to do in their Christian life. Of these seven churches, there were two that God doesn't condemn in any way. He says nothing, if you would, negative about their actions or their lives or their, their if you say, their work for God. God was, in essence, very pleased with them in, in all ways as far as we know. And yet, even those churches, God had something for them to do. So when I ask the question, do we need or do you need revival, I'm not really asking the question, are you in sin and need to get right with God? Although that's a, an important question to ask. That may be part of it. But the question is, do you need to move along in your Christian life? And the answer to that question, no matter who is in this room, and no matter how long you've been saved, and no matter how spiritual you may be, the answer to that question is, yes. And since that's true, a week of meetings or Sunday morning services or Sunday night services or Wednesday night services are important times for God's people because they are times when the word of God is preached and God uses the foolishness of preaching to help those who are part of the family of God, to help people come to Christ, to help those who are part of the family of God to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, yes, everyone, in a sense has a need for revival. And by the way, if you and I would sit back and want to say something like this, I have need of nothing, I have great warning for you, because the last church in Revelation chapter 3 and in verse 17, that church was saying this, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And you know what's interesting? It was the only church that said, I don't need anything, and it was the only church that didn't get any praise because they needed something. And they didn't even realize it. So, I certainly hope you weren't say, one saying, I'm fine, everything's wonderful. Because the truth is, we all need truth from God's word. So, then, this morning, let's dig into this passage once again. Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Two chapters... And, um, and let's see what God has for us. You see, um, though there may be nothing to repent of, at least two of the churches, as we already mentioned, um, God still has a work for us to do for him. And uh, where it all started for me in Revelation 2 and 3 actually was the study of the first seven verses because I was going to preach on the church at Ephesus, uh, as I mentioned last week. And then as I was reading through, last week's message kind of formulated, but in the midst of studying last week's message and seeing how God laid out each one of these seven letters, there were a number of things that challenged me, and I want to dig into some of those this morning. And it all starts where it, where it starts in the passage and actually where it really started for me. It starts with God. And we find at the beginning of each one of the letters... God is speaking, obviously, but he says, unto the angel of the church of, at, at Ephesus. And then you find in verse 8, and unto the angel of the church of Smyrna write. Um, and uh, and you, you find verse 18, and unto the angel of the church of Thyatira write. And so God is, is telling John. It's like God is speaking to John specifically. He says, okay, now look, here's, 
Here's the letter to the church at Ephesus. Here's what I want you to write, John. And then he starts. You, you get in the picture? Each one of the letters begins that way. So unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write. Here's what I want you to write down, John. These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars. That's the beginning of verse 1. So throughout in these letters that God sends to each church, urging them to be overcomers, he begins each one by introducing himself. And that's rather intriguing to me. You say, why? Well, for a couple of reasons. First of all, because the churches didn't need God, Jesus Christ to introduce them, himself to them. They were part of the family of God. And many of them were walking with God and everything else. But God takes time with each one of the churches. He says, okay, John, write. Here's what you write. And he starts each one by saying, I'm God. But now he doesn't say it that way. To each one of the churches, he introduces himself differently. And I thought that was rather interesting. In fact, it's interesting for, for a couple reasons. Here we go again. I am going to have a couple reasons for everything. It's interesting for a couple reasons. First is because if you read Revelation chapter 1, most everything that he uses to introduce himself, he already said in Revelation 1. So the first question that comes to my mind is I started to read these letters to churches, and the first thing God did was introduce himself to the church in different ways each time, first question that, that came to mind is, why would God do that? And then, as I had already read Rome, Revelation chapter 1, the, the question came to mind, why would God repeat himself? Because God's already said all these things. Now, I don't know if that causes any questions in your mind, but I'm trying to arouse them in your mind, if you're thinking with me at all today, to ask the question, why would God do that? Why would God spend time to introduce himself when he already introduced himself? And why would God, in each introduction, present himself in a different way to the church? I mean, look, what, if God is going to introduce himself in Revelation 1, and he's going to use all these different ways to describe who he is and what he, is, he, he has done and everything else, then why would he go back and use those things to describe himself again and only use parts to introduce himself to each one of the churches. I am so glad you asked that, and I'm glad you're intrigued this morning about that because I am. So I want to share with you the things that I have learned and the things that have, have challenged me. You see, he presented himself differently to each one of these churches because these churches needed to see God in a certain way. Because each one either had problems or issues or they had successes in their life that they needed to see God in a specific way. So God said, hey, look, I know I already talked about these things. In fact, the truth is, according to Revelation chapter 1, these were to be sent to the seven churches. Seven churches were already to have read chapter 1, and they already had the introduction, but then they were to be given this specific letter for each church. Do, do you get it? It seems rather strange, doesn't it? But God does that because he wants them to know, this is who I am, and this is why you need me. It's beautiful. It really is. He begins in the first description of himself, and he says, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Now here you have, like, okay, good. Wow, that's impressive. That really helps me. I get it. In fact, when you look at these, uh, when you read these things, as I did, uh, some of them I kind of read and I say, all right, 
so that's who God is. But here's the problem. Sometimes we just go through those things and we don't really think what they mean and what it, what it was talking about, what Jesus was talking about. So let me explain it real quickly, at least this first one right now. And what we find in chapter 2 and verse 1, when he introduces himself to the church at Ephesus, he introduces himself as the one that holdeth the seven stars. Well, who are the seven stars? The seven stars, according to Revelation chapter 1, are the angels of the churches. You say, the angels of the churches? What are you talking about? You say, each church has its own angel. Did you know we have an angel? No, most people believe that what he's talking about, the word angel means messenger. In fact, it's used sometimes in scripture in that sense. Not every time you see the word uh, angelos, I think it is, uh, in, in the scripture, is it referring to an angel, a heavenly host or a heavenly being, if you would. Sometimes it's referring to just a messenger. Many writers believe that what he's talking about is that each church had a pastor. And a man that was a messenger to the church. And God holds those messengers in his hand, the scriptures indicate. Or he holds the seven stars in his hand, indicating that God is, if you would, the holder, the protector, if you would, of his own. And he gives us that picture. The candlesticks, we're told, and you can find that, again, if you take time to read Revelation chapter 1, and we're not going to do that this morning, you'll find that the seven the candlesticks are the churches. Uh, look, if you would, at the end of verse, uh, the last verse of the chapter, verse 20. He says, The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in thy right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Aren't you glad when God explains these things? All right, so what is he talking about? Well, God is the one who walks in the midst of the candlesticks. He's the one who holds the seven stars. And God is picturing himself then to the church at Ephesus as both the protector and the observer and the Lord of the church. And they needed that message. They needed to hear that message. They needed to know that. Why did they need to know that? Because they were facing persecution and they needed protection. But also because they had left their first love. And they needed to know that God knew that. And that although they were doing a lot of good things and they were serving God and they, they did a lot of good works and there were things that they hated that God hated, their service for Jesus Christ had been cold. It had just been done out of, well, out of duty or responsibility or because they had just learned to do things and they had lost their first love. And they needed to see God not just as a protector for those who were facing persecution and those who were standing firm for that which is right, but they also needed to see God as the one who was observing them and knew what their heart was like. And they needed to see him in that light so that they would be, if you would, convicted about the fact that they were doing the right things, but they didn't have the right heart. Friends, sometimes we need to see God that way too. We need to see God as the one who's walking through the midst of the church and seeing us and seeing us for who we really are and not just seeing our outward and our actions and saying, ooh, look at so-and-so. They're singing well at church today and they seem to have a real enthusiasm for me. But a God who, who's observing and looking at the, the inside of the heart and saying, what's going on there and I, I really missed that relationship we once had because they didn't love me like they 
Christ today. And they're doing the right things. But they've lost their love. So this first picture of God was important for the church. And, I, and I'll tell you, quite honestly, the more I've read through this chapter, these chapters, the more I realize that God's introduction was vitally important for the church to understand the message that was to come. Because they had to see God, the church in Ephesus, as the protector and then as the one who walked through the midst and observed everything that was going on and was the Lord of the church who deserved their worship and deserved their love. And if they would see that and understand that, it would impact their response to the message he was going to share with them. So I'll tell you something. What verse 1, often we skip over and just say, whoo, yeah, God is the one who holds the seven stars, is really important to the message that was sent to, the, to the, each church. So we see that, number one. We're going to have seven points because he's pictured in different ways. Look at verse 7. He, the, I'm sorry, verse 8. Unto the angel of the church of Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. Well, now, what kind of picture is that? And what is he talking about? Well, there's two things we learn about God. He is the eternal almighty one, and he is the conquering one. Now, who needed that? The believers at Smyrna needed that. Why? Because they were being persecuted for their faith. You can read about it. He says, I know your works. And then right after that, what's the next thing he says? I know your, I know your works and, and the next thing, poverty. And he says, I know the blasphemy of them which say they're Jews and are not, but are of the sin of God of Satan. And he says, fear None of those things which thou shalt suffer. Why not? Because I am the God who is the almighty God, and I can meet every need that you have. I am the God who is always in existence, and I have always met needs, and I will continue to meet needs. I am the almighty God. They needed that message from God, but they also needed to see him as the conquering one. He says, I'm the one that was dead, and I'm alive. I won the victory over death. So listen, church this morning, you're afraid. I get it. I faced death, and I died, and I was buried, and I rose again. I'm victorious over death, never to die again. I'm dying, and I'm risen. And I will be with you every step of the way. Don't fear. See, the picture of God given is, is really vitally important for this church who's going through hard times, who are, are just afraid. I mean, they're every day their lives are in fear for, am I going to make it another day? Am I going to suffer more? And they needed to see a God who is eternal and almighty. They needed to see a conquering one. You know what's interesting? Some believe that the angel of this church was a guy by the name of Polycarp. You ever hear that name? He's known as one of the early church fathers, and many believe he was the pastor of the church at Smyrna, and that actually he was one of, if you would, the, the seven stars. Now, can we prove that? Well, hi historians at least tell us that they know that to be the case or believe that to be the case. But you know what? His death is a testament to the fact that God was this almighty one that could meet his needs. And I want to share it with you because his testimony is actually written down in what he did because he was, he was died at the, he burned at the stake for his faith, for his love of Jesus Christ. The guy at this time 
when he was ready to die, was 86 years of age. He stood before the authorities. He stepped forward. He was asked of the proconsul. Here's, here's the record of it. If he really was Polycarp. And he said yes. And the proconsul, the ones who were hearing the, the matter, urged him to deny the charges that were laid against him of being a Christian and loving Jesus Christ. And here's what they said. Respect your years, the, the proconsul exclaimed. He added similar appeals made on such occasions. Swear by Caesar's fortune. Change your attitude. Say, away with the godless. Polycarp, with his face set, looked at all the crowd in the stadium, waved his hands toward them. He sighed. He looked up to heaven and he cried, away with the godless. But the governor wasn't happy with that, so he pressed him further. He said, swear and I will set you free. Execrate Jesus Christ. For 86 years, Polycarp said, I've been his servant. And he's never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? I have wild beasts, said the proconsul. I shall throw you to them if you don't change your attitude. Call them, replied the old man. We cannot change our attitude if it means a change from better to worse. But it is a splendid thing to change from cruelty to justice. If you make light of the beasts, said the governor, I'll have you destroyed by fire unless you change your attitude. To which Polycarp answered, the fire you threaten burns for a time and it's soon extinguished. There is a fire you know nothing about. The fire of the judgment to come and of eternal punishment. The fire reserved for the ungodly. Why do you hesitate? What do you want? The proconsul was amazed. They sent a crier to stand in the middle of their arena, arena and announce, and he announced three times, Polycarp has confessed that he is a Christian. And the shouts begin to, began to go up from every throat all around. Polycarp must be burned alive. And the rest followed quickly. Crowds rushed and they collected logs. They piled them all around and under Polycarp. And when it was ready, Polycarp prayed these words, O Father of thy beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have come to know thee, the God of angels and powers and all creation and of the whole family of the righteous who live in thy presence, I bless thee for counting me worthy of this day and hour, that in the number of the martyrs, I may partake of Christ's cup to the resurrection of eternal life of both soul and body in the imperishability that is the gift of the Holy Spirit. And when he had offered up the final amen and completed his prayer, they lit the fire and a great flame shot up until he died. The church at Smyrna needed an eternal Almighty God. They needed a God who is dead and who is alive and gave them hope and could give them the ability to stand as Polycarp did and many other Christians and give their lives in service and in love of Jesus Christ.
to the next church, the church at Pergamos, God said to him to write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. It's found in verse 12 of chapter 2. I'm sorry I didn't tell you at the beginning. Now that's an interesting one, is it not? A sharp sword with two edges. Why would God present himself to the church at Pergamos and say, I'm the God who's the God with a sharp sword and two edges? That's kind of interesting, isn't it? But that picture is shared back in chapter 1 and verse 16 when it says, And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. You say, well, what's the significance and what does it mean? Well, later in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 19, we're not going to turn there, but listen to it if you would. Verse 15, the Bible says this, And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. It is the sign of the power and judgment of Almighty God. You say, well, wait a second. Wait a second. This is the church. It's God's people. What he's talking about in Revelation 19 is judgment of sinners. Yes, but he uses the very same term that he is a God of judgment because this church needed to see him that way. They didn't need to see him as the Almighty, as the, if you would, the comforter, as the one who was dead and is alive and could give them the victory and help them overcome death because they weren't willing to overcome death. They were living controlled by sin in their lives. There were things that were displeasing to God, a lot of things. And God then comes to him and he says, look, I'm the one with a sharp sword with two edges. I'm a God of judgment. And people, as much as we don't like it, sometimes Christians need that message too. Today, we live in a we really live in a day when when preachers and it seems like a lot of churches just want to emphasize no God is a loving God God is a God of judgment and Christians need to know that not from the standpoint only that we see lost people and say there is a hell there is a coming fire and a coming judgment and they are going to head there and we need to be concerned about that but we need to seek God that way ourselves when there's sin in our lives that we don't tolerate it anymore we don't let it go on, that we don't that we let it go unchecked. These people, in fact, the church at Ephesus hated the work of the Nicolaitans, and God says, I hate it too. You know what was the problem with the church of Pergamos? Some of the people liked the deeds and were involved in the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which God had said in, earlier in the chapter, I hate. And so God said, I want you to see me, and you need to see me as the one with the sharp sword. Because I'm a God of judgment. You better, not, you better not mess around anymore. It's time for you to get your life right. It's time for you to turn things around. And that's one of the messages we don't like to hear, but it's one we need to. In chapter 2 and verse 18, we come to the fourth picture of God. And unto the angel of the church of Thyatira write, all right, so how is God going to present himself now? These things saith the Son of God, who hath eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. What are you talking about? Good question. Have you ever been looked at with the penetrating eye of an authority when you've done wrong? Have you, I, I, I've seen some. I've seen some videos of of uh, animals that have done wrong, like a, a dog, you know. And the owner looks at it and is like, "What did you do?" And they just give you the evil eye, you know. And you can see the dog kind of like 
power and puts his tail between its legs. And, you know, so you, you, you can picture that, right? You, you, can, you can see that. This, this picture of, of the penetrating eye of the, of the one who is the authority looking on the one who has done the wrong. Well, the, the truth is, um, even as human beings, when we, we're guilty, you know, when, when someone gives you that evil eye, like you, you did something at, at school and the teacher knows it, and so the teacher's giving you that, giving you that eye. I, I've done that in vacation Bible time sometimes with the other guys. There's some kids that are maybe poking one another, and you just kind of like you go over and you just give them the eye. I see what's going on. You know exactly what you're doing. And they can tell. It's like, okay, well, that's kind of the picture God wants the church at Thyatira to have. I'm the one with a penetrating eye. I'm the one who sees what's going on. I am the one with the eyes as a flame of fire, pure and holy, and yet I'm one who sees everything that's going on. So don't think you can fool me. Don't think you can get away with things. I'm the one with eyes as a flame of fire. My feet are as fine brass. This church tolerated false teaching, not just some error, but serious error that permeated the church and it was leading believers astray. And God was looking at them with his penetrating eyes and observing it, and it was condemning them. And you say, well, what about the feet? Good question. A few writers believe this is referring to his immense strength, his holiness, and his justice. But we find at the end of their letter, people who had not strayed from God or held that evil doctrine, and to them, God was strength. He was power to aid them. And he was encouraged, he encouraged them to hold fast that which is good. So God was the one with the penetrating eye that said, you've done wrong and I know it and I've seen it and I'm observing it and it's time for you to straighten up. But to the others, he says, I am strength, I'm your help. And when he says, I'm the son of God, he says, I'm the authority, I'm the one who came and gave myself for you. So as the authority, I have that penetrating eye and I've seen what you've done and I know it and if you've done wrong, you should feel bad. But I'm also the one with those feet of brass, and I'm full of strength, and I'm full of the help that you need for those who are doing that which is right. And this is beautiful. Honestly, um, you, you come to this, and, and I've done this many times. I've read Revelation 2 and 3, and I always read those dis- descriptions, and I just kind of went on my way because, well, partially because I didn't understand them all. I can't be honest about it, partially because I didn't. It's like, holds the seven stars really good, you know, feet of brass, wow. But when you really understand them and you see the picture that God is trying to get across, you understand this is exactly what the church needed. They needed to see God that way because there was something in their lives in some cases that was wrong that needed to be straightened out and they needed to see God this way and others who were doing that which was right and they needed to see God in an encouraging way. And each picture God gives is that kind of picture dealing exactly with what they need. Well, if you go on and we get to chapter three now, yes, we're finally there, right? And he says, the angel of the church of Sardis, here's what he wanted written. These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Well, the seven stars, wait a second. We already heard that, didn't we? Who, what are the seven stars? They are the angels of the churches, which we would believe then to be the messengers that God had for the churches, which would have been the pastors of those churches. So he says, I have them. They're mine. Uh, I, I am in control of them. 
And then he also pictures himself as the one who has the seven spirits of God. What is that? That is a baffling description. And i got to tell you, honestly, um, I, I can only tell you what I've read by commentators because it seems rather confusing to me, but they reference Revelation chapter 1 and verse 4, and they say the seven spirits that are before the throne of God are representative of the Holy Spirit of God, is in charge of and overseeing, if you would, the entire church. So he says, I'm the one who has the Holy Spirit of God. And he says to this church, I am not only the one who has the Holy Spirit of God, but I'm the one who has the seven stars. And you need the Spirit of God. And you need these ministers to help you be what God wants you to be. This church was powerless. If you look at the church at Sardis, he says, I know thy works at the end of verse 1, that thou hast named that thou livest. Their reputation before people was, these are good folks. This is a good church. This is an alive church. Some good things here. But he says, you're dead. We say, are they, were they unsaved? No, this is the church, people. This is the church. The Christians can act spiritually dead. They can act like unsaved people. They can be really weak in their spiritual life. And so he says, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. And so he calls upon them to repent. They needed to see that he was the one who was in control of the pastors. He was the one who was in control of the spirit of God. And they needed both the spirit of God. And they needed, by the way, the preaching of God to help them see that what they had left, they needed to strengthen and, reach and return to God, if you would. Look in chapter 3 and verse 7. You say, man, these last four have been like judgment, I know. And to the angel of the church at Philadelphia write, these things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. Wow. What a picture of God. <laughs> what does it mean? I mean, okay, what, what, what does it mean? Good question. I th the first one's pretty simple. God is holy. He's a holy God. He's a just God. He's pure. By the way, he doesn't, not only does he not tolerate sin, but he doesn't tolerate those who mistreat and those who, who uh, do evil to those who are godly. In fact, you'll see that he says in verse 8, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. And here's what he says. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, verse 9, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Why? Because I am the God who is holy, and I am the God who is true. And you can count on me to do what is just and what is right. And these people will pay. And someday they will stand before you and they will bow. And that's my promise, God said, to this church. And then he says that he has the key of David. So what is that dealing with? Well, uh, that gives us the picture that here's a God that could open doors to enable them to remain faithful to him and a God who can close doors, and he's the God who ultimately then is in control of everything. Isn't that encouraging? 
Look, when you're going through suffering, it's encouraging just to be reminded that God is the one who has the keys to open doors and to close doors. And no one can stop those, those keys. No one can stop the door from being open. No one can stop it from being closed because God is the one who has the key. Now, I don't know about you. It's bad to be locked out <laughs> and not have a key. Um, but it's wonderful to know who has the key and be able to get it. And that is a wonderful picture that God gave to the church of Philadelphia. He says, look, I'm, I'm, the God, I'm a holy God. I don't tolerate. I see the sin of these people and what they've done to you, and I will not tolerate it. I am the true God. I'm trustworthy. You can count on me. I'll take care of this. I will open doors. I'll close doors. You may face more persecution, but it is the door that I have opened. I'll give you the strength. I'll give you the help to make it through. They needed to see that kind of God. They needed to see a God who could meet their needs no matter what their suffering was and no matter what their difficulty was. A God who is holy, who is true, and who holds the keys. In the Daily Bread, they dealt with this verse and about God holding the keys, and here's how they ended their, their devotional with a poem, as they often do. Because Christ is the one who holds the key to all our needs, we can release what we hold dear and follow where he leads. And how true that is. In chapter 3 and verse 14, we come to the last, uh, if you would, message. And to, unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write. All right, John, time to write again. Write to these people. Present to them this picture. These things saith the amen. The faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Why? would God present him as himself as the amen? The first part indicates Jesus Christ is the final word. He's the final word. He's the true word. What do you say at the end of something when you agree with it in, in church? I don't say it anywhere else. Amen. You know why? Because we understand it to mean so be it. So God says, I am the amen. I'm the final word here. I'm the final word everywhere in the church at Laodicea needed to know that because God didn't say anything good about them at all. They, they needed to have that clearly in their mind that, look, God, this is a very serious message. I am the one who speaks, and I am the final word. I am the true word. I am the faithful word. I'm the faithful and the true witness, and I am the beginning of the creation of God. I'm the one who made all things, and by me all things consist. They were lukewarm in their service to God. They needed to understand God won't overlook and tolerate their state. God won't say, hey, you're pretty good. Because isn't lukewarm pretty good? They weren't cold. I know they weren't hot. But they were okay. They were lukewarm. But the one who is the amen, the final word, says that's not good enough. You know when a church has a website that says God doesn't care, they're fools. Because the amen says, I do care about where you're at. And I care about what's going on in your life. He is the amen, the faithful and true witness. He is the creator of all. And we will stand before him and give account for what I will do. 
You know, when I was first contemplating these pictures of God given to each church, my first thought was the great question we should ask ourselves is what do we need God to be to us? And that actually is kind of a, uh, it's kind of a precious picture because then you can go and you can pick and choose. You know, you can, you got these seven things. Say, what do I need God to be to me today? But that's not how this, this, that's not how this works. Do, do, do you understand it? That's not how this works. This is not each church deciding who, who, who the God is that's going to talk to him. This is God saying, this is who you need to see. So, the question is not, what do you want God to be to you? The question is, how do you need to see God? Does that make sense? See, the, the, when we come to this passage, we, we can't say, oh, look, God is a protector. That's what I want. God is the loving, almighty God. That's what I want. He's the eternal one. He can help me in all my problems. Yes, that's what I want. But what we need to come to the place and understand is that God already has an opinion of us, and we need to seek God in the right light and respond to him. And that is, that is why God took time to each church to say, this is who I am because this is how you need to see me. He could have said the same thing to every church. But where they were at spiritually determined how they needed to see God. And so, to me, the great challenge of God's introductions to each one of the churches is to ask myself the question, how does God see me, therefore, how do I need to see God? And quite honestly, everyone in this room might need to have a different picture of God. Some might need to see God as the amen, the final word, who is unhappy with what I'm doing, and I need to do something about it. Some in this room just need the encouragement to know that God's eternal. He's the one who's dead and is alive, and he can he can help you through the greatest struggle and difficulty you're going through, and he will be that one that's closer, that sticks closer than a brother that holds your hand through the difficulty and gives you the grace to make it no matter how dark your days may be. So it's not how do I want to see God, but how do I need to see God this morning? That is the challenge of Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. And that, my friends, is a message that I have missed for years and years myself in Revelation 2 and 3. And it's a question that, that sometimes, because our own flesh blinds us to reality, we don't know how to answer. Because the church at Laodicea, what did they say about themselves? I'm rich. Everything's going well. I have need of nothing. And, and our sinful human nature has a tendency to cloud our eyes 
to how we really need to see God. So, so here's what I ask you to do. Irregardless, but because of the meetings, but irregardless of the meetings. So Christian, would you come to God this week and ask him to help you see yourself who you are? And then ask him to help you help help you see him as you need to see him. So that if God reveals some sin in your life, you'll see him as a God who's the amen. He's the final word. And you better deal with this. And then make a season of prayer. If you're just going through difficulties and struggles, that you would see that this is a time where you need God to be that the eternal one, the almighty one, the one who is dead, who is alive again, who is victorious and who can give me the ability to win the victory. But may we all come to Come to the Lord and say, God, show me for what I am, show me who I am, and help me to see you as I need to see you, so that I might deal with who I am and be what I ought to be. Because God's goal for me is to be an overcomer, so that someday when I stand in his presence, he'll say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. opportunities for us to see who we are, who God is. Let us pray. And I believe that you're the challenge, isn't it? By God's introduction to each one of the churches. Have you seen God?